understanding the doctrine of Christ and strengthening our testimony is a labor that will bring real joy and satisfaction. We need to consistently study the words of Christ as found in the scriptures and the words of living prophets. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Studying is then another essential key to become a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Prayer and scripture study go hand in hand. They work together for our benefit. This is the process that the Lord has established. To feast means more than to taste. To feast means to savor. We savor the scriptures by studying them in a spirit of delightful discovery and faithful obedience. When we feast upon the words of Christ, they are embedded in the fleshy tables of the heart. Well, we're back, and it was mostly a bunch of different holidays running together, some little bit of sickness coming around, and then falling out of habit a little bit. <laughs> but we're back with uh, Judges chapters 2 through 4, 6 through 8, and 13 through 16. Well, we wanted to share a real-life example of repentance. Right. How not <laughs> everything is perfect and goes according to plan. Yes, we say that a lot in a lot of the episodes, but this is a very good example. We've fallen, we have fallen away. We had become prideful in our in our consistency, and we fell away, and now we're coming back. Um. <laughs> but you didn't miss much, only like years. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think last time we talked, they, the Israelites had left in Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the cool thing is... Uh, this these chapters, uh, the way that they're kind of broken down in these different you know sections two to four, six through eight, and thirteen through sixteen, I think that's really interesting to ha to see what's in them and and why uh, those ones were kind of selected from the from the group because um, certain ones were omitted. I mean, chapter five was omitted because I think it basically kind of repeats. Um, it's just a song of praise because Israel is delivered from the Canaanite bondage. And so it's kind of like, eh, there's not anything new here that wasn't in chapter four and three. Um, but still, I think a lot of the stuff in here is really cool. Um, starting with kind of in chapter two through four, chapters two through four. The the Lord is using the Israelites as an example of uh, the pride cycle that we see in the Book of Mormon as well. And what I like is that you see it here in the Old Testament. Uh, Christ talks about it in the New Testament. We see it in the Book of Mormon. And then there's lots of warnings about it in Doctrine and Covenants and stuff like that to the saints about this pride cycle, about how they'll start to be prosperous, they start to do uh, good things, they start to, to have gain, they start to have, I don't know, a lot of blessings. And then they start to get kind of full of themselves about it, saying, you know, we, we're awesome. We're such great people and we are the Lord's people. And then it becomes like a, a a turn at some point where they start to look down on others because they're not the same, because they don't have all these blessings. And then they start to get lazy with some of the commandments. And, you know, in Doctrine and Covenants 82.10, where it says, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but when you do not what I say, you have no promise. Eventually people stop 
following the commandments. They stop sticking to their covenants and bad stuff starts to happen. And it's because the Lord says, you're not fulfilling your part of this. So I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to continue to bless you when you're not doing your part of the covenant. So I think it's just interesting how, you know, you see this throughout the scriptures where it's very clear that it's a universal principle that we always struggle with as disciples of Christ. No matter how many different civilizations have experienced it, we, we always have to be reminded not to fall away, not to get lazy, not to start to give in to the natural man, right? So, yeah, what what's tricky in these sections, in these chapters, I mean, is we have the Israelites, the Midianites, mm-hmm. the Philistines, I think, the Philistines, yeah. and... Uh, several other ones i think canaanites and yeah yeah and one of the thoughts i had was what is it about because there comes a time when joshua joshua has died and it mentions that the elders also passed away that had been there to witness the miracles um and now they're rising kind of like the rising generation was kind of forgotten you know, and they have it really good. They're currently prospering. But then they start getting away from their covenants or changing, not changing their culture, but changing their beliefs and adopting. Uh, and so we get some specific uh, types of uh, beliefs in, in, in worshipings that are very abominable to the Lord. I, I believe one of them was uh, sacrificing children animals or innocent people it was like i think they call it infanticide or or when you when you're like you sacrifice babies to these gods the god of ball and 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 some others now the thought i was having as i was reading this i was thinking like what is it that would attract the israelites to these other cultures or to these other to abandon their beliefs so is that the same case in our day where we have it pretty good we have the scriptures on every device we could want we can have them physically we have general conference every six months we have the enzyme we we have the brethren doing almost monthly devotionals for the youth or young adults or even just for you know we have the prophet on churchofjesuschrist.org that's always giving us some sort of quote and message even in between conferences you know the amount of good content for us to consume is more than we have time to consume it but likewise the amount of bad content or or questionable or compromising content to consume is is equal even more probably more so I try to imagine myself as an Israelite over there. Was it their building structures? Did they have greater cities? Did they seem to be having more fun? Did they have different apparel? Or they had weird customs with incense and weird meats they ate that we weren't the Israelites weren't supposed to eat? Or like what was it that would make you think, I should give it a try? You know? And how does that entry occur? Most of the time I think it occurs with something that's kind of benign. Mm-hmm. Uh Almost like in the Book of Mormon when he talks about poisoning by degrees, you know, you you just oh well just come 
come down. Okay, you're not. I'll come down and meet you halfway. Just bring some of yours, you know. Yeah. You know that kind of story, and and then before you know it, you're now in a situation where you're like, well, you know what? Maybe Joshua and these old guys were kind of uh, out of their mind. They don't understand the new technology that Babylon has. <laughs> they don't understand the new the new definition we have for for what a society should be. You know, they don't understand that. You know, hey, maybe maybe I'm restricted by these beliefs, and they're the ones that are actually free, or that looks funner. You know, like that's where my mind has to go for this to make sense to me. Yeah. Because if you read it really quickly, you automatically judge them as, man, here we go, these diso- disobedient Israel. Here they go again. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not sure the Lord. Actually, I'm sure. <laughs> In my mind, I'm sure that the Lord saved these stories in Israel and then gives us all of Isaiah, which is kind of a lament and in, in like poetic story of Israel's continuous fall and the Lord's continuous love for us as like one of the greatest scriptural prophets of all time that everyone quotes to talk about these times when Israel, if it doesn't mean it's us. If it doesn't mean that it's us that we're continuously attracted to those things that led Israel away, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, the there's an author, uh, Ludlow, wrote Unlocking the Old Testament, and in it they write um, that Baal or Baal was the great male weather god, while Ashtart was the fertility goddess. Together they were responsible for the proper combination of moisture and earth of the germination and growth to ensure a successful harvest. The cycles of spring and summer, fertility and drought, life and death were all combined by the Canaanites into the story of Baal. Their religion gave them the false hope that they could control these cycles and have power to guarantee fertility of the soil. To release this power, they reenacted the life of Baal in his temple or shrine through pageantry, ritual, female idols, naked images, phallic sculptures, and religious prostitution. So when you're talking about what is it that's going to make these people want to do that stuff and leave their traditions of, you know, they've been that Joshua left when he died. Honestly, I think it's the desire to want to have more control over your life and outcomes. And this religion over here is saying if we do these things, these rituals and these this pageantry and whatever, these sacrifices, we can guarantee control over our harvest. And you're like, huh, over time, you're like, so it's not completely left up to chance. And it's not I don't have to, you know, just pray and hope for things. I can go and those those late night get quick rich schemes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, basically, it's the same idea. Right. Where that that, that control, I think, is enticing. I think it makes people say, well, it's not like I'm going to go become a priest over there, but. Maybe we can just do a couple of those things. Can't hurt, right? Maybe it'll help our harvest, you know. And then over time, like you said, you introduce things little by little, and a, a whole population suddenly kind of starts to gravitate more towards this thing. Yeah. So we we know in that time, having posterity is super important. Like Isaac, uh, I mean not Isaac, but Abraham and Sarah, you know, their kid. That was a big milestone for them they're not the only ones there's many people right so that that's kind of your retirement plan there's no 401ks it's kind of like you have your children they take over and hopefully take care of you so you can kind of live to a somewhat old age and die 
with food in your stomach, right? And and the other one, this this harvest is kind of like your livelihood, right? So those two enticements could be things that um, oh, and there's also like I don't know how much of this fertility god is. It's also supposed to make you attractive to all the babes or all the dudes out there, you know, because there's also that in our culture. I mean, it's like there, there's things, but but if you if you just talk about you know your your livelihood, things that help your livelihood, are there things that are presented to us that will help your livelihood in our day that are traps that that will I think I think we live in an era where there's so much possibility of what you can do correctly, but the, in every occupation there's always the the temptation to compromise your principles to get ahead. Well, you know, I, one one really big one is the marijuana industry, right? Uh, makes a lot of money. I mean, look at states that have legalized it and they have the dispensaries and they make a ton of money and the taxes are just insane. And they justify it by saying, well, the taxes are going to go to public schools, you know, and it's like, what? That's a really good cause, you know, like gambling in Vegas, too. Yeah. And lotteries in a lot of different states, the lottery goes a lot of the profit from that goes to public schools. And so you look at that and you say, that's a really good cause. And gosh darn it, if we could have hundreds of millions of dollars funneling to public schools everywhere, that's not a bad thing, right? And it's like, yeah, but then you have gambling and you have uh, the lottery, which is another form of gambling. And you have the presence of marijuana just being smoked recreationally. And it's kind of like, at what cost? You know, and what what things are we introducing into our, our society under the guise of a positive outcome that may be overall in the long run detrimental. And I think that there's a lot of things like that in our lives that, you know, we look at this and we say, well, they they were just corrupt and over time they fell. But there's this quote by um, Elder Neil A. Maxwell. He said, the human family is seldom more than one generation away from deep doubt and even disbelief. Laman and Lemuel doubted and murmured because, wrote Nephi, they knew not the dealings of that God which had created them, who had created them. They were provincial, just like forgetful Israel. And I think what he's saying is that this is not something that we're immune from today. You know, these kinds of things where we can allow ourselves to to start to look elsewhere for, for prosperity, look elsewhere for blessings other than the gospel, other than the Lord other than the covenants that we've made, we can start to look elsewhere. And maybe it's not inherently bad at first. Maybe good things start to happen, and that reinforces that belief that, hey, I might be on doing the right thing here. I'm still going to church. I'm not going to stop doing that. But then over time, maybe it, you do, because the other thing takes more precedence. You know? it's, it's funny, because Israel, Israel gets in trouble, and it's just like us. Once we get in trouble... And we know we left the Lord last week, and now it's this week, and now we're not feeling great, or we're in trouble. Then we're like, oh, I need to pray to the Lord. And in chapter 6, <laughs> I really like, that was probably my favorite chapter out of all of these, was um, verse 7 where it says, And it came to pass that when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites. So they're in a bad situation. The Midianites aren't living up to their, their glamour. You know they, they're they're subjects unto them, 
And so in verse 8, it says, The Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I, and I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. So it seems like they felt like their oppression was the gods of the people that were oppressing them that made them powerful. Where the Lord is trying to tell them, no, it's because you left me and I'm your God. And it almost feels, you can start reading and it almost feel like there's the battle of all these gods. But but the, the lesson here is there's only one God. There's only one true way. And there's a lot of replications of that. And people fall prey. And even like, you know, in Joseph Smith's time is a perfect example of everyone taking God into their own flavor and almost creating their own likeness in their gods, claiming to worship the one true God. And then in the first vision, the Lord appears and says, none of these are me. They come unto me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and all that. And I love what Gideon does here because Gideon seems like a really cool guy. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared unto Gideon, or who we're talking about, and the Lord is with thee, thou art a man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So I love him because he's honest. <laughs> you know, he's not right about yeah. what he thinks the reasons are, but he's honest. And that's one of my favorite things when we pray and when we ask the Lord, it's more important to be honest than to be right, than say the right things. And <laughs> in verse 14, he says, And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent thee? So he's basically saying, you're going to be the instrument of getting out of all these problems, and you're going to tell them I sent you. Very similar to Moses. Moses is going through a similar situation where he's like, but, you know, many times the Lord has to remind him, but I'm with thee. Yep. I'm with thee. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you. And, and, you know, these questions that Gideon poses are real questions. Sometimes we ourselves are saying things like, man, how did I get into this problem? I thought I went to church. I thought I wore my garments. I thought, I thought I'm like, I went to a temple or, or whatever, right? Why did this bad thing happen to us? Not always. Um, so, so there's a couple of scenarios. Well, there's a couple, there's a differentiation we have to make here. One of them is sometimes things happen to us because we departed the path. And you know what? We got lost. And then sometimes we're holding on to the rod and the path is rough, and that's why the rod is there. Just keep hanging on. And so sometimes the trials in our lives, it may not be that we did a great sin or terrible thing. If that's the case, if we can check the boxes in our brain and say, I'm still being true to my covenants, and this kind of sucks, well, keep going. Help is coming. You'll be able to bear it. And sometimes you just have to go through it, and you'll understand it later, right? And then other times when we have lost all sense of direction and we're like, well, I haven't, I've broken my covenants. I haven't opened the scriptures. I don't feel like I have a testimony anymore. And what have I done to cultivate it? Oh, wait, nothing. Oh, okay. So that makes sense, you know, because 
all of these things, our life is like a garden that has to continuously be pruned. And so the Israelites, they went after the, you know, the, 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 the enticements and the traditions and philosophies of their surrounding. They left the Lord and his teachings. And now that they need um, saving for bondage, Gideon is going to be that, that, that man. Yeah, I think a couple of things interesting about Gideon. There's this quote by Millet in the book Men of Valor. And they say, once again, the Lord sought to deliver the Israelites out of the prevailing darkness of the day and into his marvelous light. Jehovah then did what he so often does to awaken and retrieve his wandering sons and daughters. He called upon a man, a common man, a good man, and then empowered and qualified and prepared that good man for greatness. An angel appeared to one Gideon and said unto him, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Gideon is, was then taught and shaped and ready to save his people and return to them, to and return them to the worship of Jehovah. But it's interesting because in verse 15 he says unto the Lord, Gideon, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He's even saying, uh, this is cool and all, and I appreciate the endorsement, but who the heck am I? to be a leader like not even in my own house am I the most powerful or most impressive person and I think um, that's a very common feeling especially when we're asked to do something that we feel is a is a monumental task something really big or a calling that we don't feel necessarily appropriate for and Elder Uchtdorf said uh, start where you are sometimes we feel discouraged because we're not more of something but remember, our weaknesses can help us to be humble and return us to Christ. Who will make weak things become strong? Satan, on the other hand, will use our weakness uses our weaknesses to the point that we are discouraged from even trying. God will take you as you are at this very moment and begin working with you. All you need is a willing heart, a desire to believe, and a trust in the Lord. Gideon saw himself as a poor farmer, but God saw him as a mighty man of valor. And I think that that is the message behind this whole story of Gideon. Besides the redemption of Israel... I think him as an individual, we see someone who is just a normal person, is not some sort of special prince or, you know, has a lineage where he can say, well, I am the descendant of so-and-so. He's just a regular dude. Mm -hmm. And yet the Lord said, because you're a regular guy, I'm going to be able to show my power through you. And if you're willing and you're, you're going to follow me, we're going to get this done. And I think that it just it just says it takes away excuses from all of us, right? To say, oh, I'm I'm not I don't have the the education other people have, or I don't have the experience in the gospel other people have, or uh, I'm not very good at public speaking, or you know whatever it may be. And the Lord's like, okay, are you putting limits on me? Are your limitations suddenly my limitations? Right? Don't limit me. I am here with you, and if I've asked you to do it. I will make it possible for you to do it if you're willing. Nothing mm -hmm. is impossible there. That's probably why missionary work works with 20-year-olds or 19-year-olds, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and maybe it's kind of a little bit the opposite. Sometimes we go and we think we actually do know everything. And then we're in for a couple of transfers of humbling. And then we realize we need to trust the Lord and and, and use him, right? Um, the cool thing is, in, in verse 17, really fast, um, Gideon says again, 
If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. And we hear a lot about signs and how they're not really. First of all, we shouldn't demand signs, right? And we shouldn't the signs come when they're supposed to or whatever. And so it's kind of interesting that he flat out requests one. But there's a another quote from President Oaks and says viewed as a whole, the scriptures contain apparently conflicting teachings and examples on whether signs should be used as proof. But the instructions to modern Israel are clear. Signs are not acceptable to produce conversions, but they are acceptable, even promised, to confirm them. The Old Testament contains memorable examples of miracles that amounted to signs. Gideon asked for and received a sign that he was chosen to deliver Israel. And I think that that's a clear distinction. He's not saying, you know, prove to me that you exist. He's saying, okay, I'm ready to do this. Can you confirm that you're with me on it, that I'm not alone, right? I just need a sign to make sure that what I'm what I'm doing is right, not convince me to do it, but I'm already doing it. Help me know that it's right. And that I think we have every every responsibility and, and privilege to request. I'm I'm on this path and I'm doing what I can do. Am I doing the right thing? And then signs will come to show you. You'll receive blessings that you can attribute as signs. The other thing about Gideon is that he's basically used he goes and tears down the altar of Baal and builds an altar to Jehovah as a symbol of the removal of this old, these these other traditions and the reestablishment of the, the correct traditions. And um, I, I think that that is really crucial to this story as well, because it's not just, hey, I'm going to go teach people and hope that they follow. It's like there's action being done here. We're removing everything that has to do with this evil thing. And we're replacing it with good, not just breaking it down, but also replacing it with something else that's that's good. So there was a uh, actually go back. There was a weird thing here where. As I was listening to this and I forget where it was, I think it was more towards the beginning. He was talking about how Joshua passed away and all the elders, but now they have judges. Yeah. And I'm curious if that means they had a new distinct form of government that was more similar to the Nephites and their judges system, you know? And and it seems like they might have not been led by one prophet, but led more by councils or judges, um, which is kind of interesting because if that is the case, that's very similar to in the Book of Mormon with King Benjamin when he does away, you know, with Mosiah, you know, the judge system, and then they institute different judges. I'm always curious why they call this, book judges yeah so there's a book by perry and ricks called judges of israel and then it says it's evident that the judges were not merely individuals who became leaders through their charismatic charismatic qualities many scriptures demonstrate the judges were appointed and chosen by jehovah to deliver israel from its frequent bondage the new testament said the lord gave unto them judges similar language in judges says that the lord raised up judges and the lord raised up a deliverer the epistle to the Hebrews states that many of the judges subdued kingdoms through their faith. Many judges, such as Othniel, Gideon, and Jephthah, were blessed with the spirit of the Lord. So yeah. I kind of see them as like prophets with privileges, you know, like. Well, it's similar to, well, not similar, but I see a similarity with Joseph Smith when uh, he, all the revelation came through him, Doctrine and Covenants. And then when the church and quorums were organized, then that revelation 
didn't need to come through him anymore. It could come through those that had keys over their specific sphere. So very similar to like Moses, when he was trying to take care of everyone's issues and the Lord's actually his father-in-law Jethro, I think Mm -hmm. was like, Hey, you're going to kill yourself. You need to restructure things. You've grown to a point where you can't just be dealing with the everyday things of everyone. And I see that how we're structured now, like bishops deal a lot more with the closely temporal affairs of the specific geographical area and the spiritual affairs. But then they're also supported by a high council in a state presidency. Right. And then the states are supported by area authorities and area presidencies. And those are supported by different members of the Quorum of the Twelve, and that's supported by the First Presidency, and that by God, and so on and so forth, right? And and I and I it, I don't know. That's where I was thinking with this. It seems like Israel grew enough where they had to change the 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 organization more to disperse the revelation, so it's more relevant, especially in times like this where there are times in the past where there were multiple prophets at the same time, actually almost always, but a lot of that was restraint of technology and 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 so you had to tell that prophet and then revelation had to tell that prophet well over there on that side and now because technology it can go through one prophet and down all the correct channels and 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 actually sometimes it can go directly to the individual that is in charge of that stewardship so that that was something interesting i was thinking about yeah and it's interesting that you know when we're looking at gideon when it's his turn to kind of be a judge and he's following what the Lord's telling him to do. And he's got this small army, right? And there's even a couple of times, I think, where the people were a little bit unimpressed by the size of the army. You know, they were kind of like, this is your your fighting force, you know? And it was almost like purposely, we're not going to have a giant army and we're not going to be this overwhelming, powerful thing to look at because we're deflecting the glory to God, not to us. And even when they want Gideon to become king, you know, but they're like requesting that he be their king, he rejects it because he keeps saying, no, you guys are missing the point. The only reason we're free, the only reason we're being successful here is because Jehovah is making it possible. If we were doing this on our own, we'd be failing. We would not be this successful. It's because of him and not because of me. Right. And it reminds me kind of of, of Ammon when all the sons of Mosiah get to get back together and they're kind of recounting their, their missionary experiences. And he says, you know, I'll boast not of myself, but I'll glory in my God. This constant deflection that good, righteous people do of it's not me. Like I'm just an instrument in his hands, but it's him that's making all this possible. It's God that does it, not not me. I'm just willing to try, you know, <laughs> and I think that's what it comes down to. Like when you start to st- to take on some of that glory is when the fall starts to happen. When that turn starts to happen, when Satan convinces you, you know, well, you know what? None of this would have happened if it weren't for you. Then you start to think, yeah, you know what? I am a pretty good guy. And then that's the start of your downfall. Um, that constant deflection of it. I know I'm here. I know I'm the one involved in this, but the only reason I'm successful is because of the Lord. You see that habitually in all of these righteous people. So the the other <laughs> the sad part is um, in Judges eight at the end Gideon dies, right? <laughs> this 
and <laughs> this is how it's written and um it says gideon was dead and the children of israel turned again and went whoring after balaam and made baal berith their god and the children of israel remember not the lord their god who had delivered them just now like last week like it wasn't <laughs> that long ago i mean it's probably years right but um had delivered them out of their hand, hands of their enemies on every side neither shoot shoot their kindness to the house of jerubal namely gideon according to all the goodness we had showed unto israel so it seems like they they also forgot to treat gideon's people descendants or something with respect as well as soon as he was gone he was gone so it, it was either his authority or the flashiness or something but it was superficial this is very this is very characteristic of either within us or when people like something happens the bishop changes i don't longer like the bishop i'm not going to church anymore <clears throat> done with that you know or yeah. you know hey my mission president he was great now i'm home and i don't really know what to do and i'm just gonna leave the church you know and you know it doesn't happen like that but it's very similar outcome we didn't take the opportunity of having someone like a gideon in our life to deepen our own testimony we kind of outsourced it to them they'll keep motivating me they'll keep calling me when to wake up in the morning and get ready for work they'll do all these things they'll be like my parent but as soon as they're not doing that you know what it must not be true i'm going af back after this other beliefs that fit more my desire to not do anything right because that that really is what these idolatry beliefs are they're almost like emotional spiritual lotteries <laughs> where you give and then that way you can do nothing and hopefully cash out on good things right um where the gospel is very different the gospel is very much centered on agency like you gotta be moving and in in christ is always saying you have to seek you have to thirst after righteousness the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price so he's always trying to show us like the intensity of our desire which is going to motivate our our agency our, our actions to move and the more we do that the more we realize wow you know we can never have enough gratitude for how much the lord is doing for us like he does for the children of israel and he and I think the Lord knows this. That's why he goes out of his way to pick someone like Gideon, to have only an army of 300 soldiers, to have rock uh, water coming out of a rock, to have manna falling from a sky, to have a pillar of light giving you light at night, to have an ocean separate so you can walk across. You know, so we can get it and remember that if he can do all of that, those things that you're battling inside your heart that say, oh, you'll never be good enough. Oh, oh, that's maybe that's just how you are. Maybe you'll never do, you know, that that is the greatest movement and miracle is the changing of our heart. So he takes what we perceive to be impossible and changes it so we can start believing that he can actually change our own heart and we can have that happiness and fulfillment that the gospel gives us. So let's talk about Samson. Oh, that, that was weird. I like the story, <laughs> but part of me is like, is this a cartoon? Just like the next Marvel movie? Because it almost sounds like he has supernatural powers. This is the Hulk origin story, right? <laughs> it's pretty close. But, you know, you what what is trippy is that his power is tied to his hair and it being cut. Almost as if the hair or the action was providing the miracle where it was the lord and samson keeping his covenants right you know and then you had uh what was her name De delilah yeah 
She wasn't. She was a Midianite, I think, or a Philistine. She was a Philistine, I think. And and so I don't know if he was supposed to do that. I I think that that might be where he broke the covenant, or he he didn't stay. And and in and in these in historical Israel, we always see the covenants being like you stay within your race. Yeah. But. That's what represented a belief system. Nowadays, you can marry anyone, doesn't matter the color, whatever, just have someone who has the same beliefs. And or maybe even not the same beliefs, but we're asked to to try to find someone who, who shares the same beliefs. Yeah, I think <laughs> there's a lot of similarities to Samson, and this is why some of this might be allegorical. There's a lot of similarities between Samson and like the, the cycle that Israel goes through. You know, him being born to a barren mother. Uh, there's only it says you know there's only six women in the Bible that have re- have received an announcement from God promising an end to their barrenness, and Samson's mother was one of them. And then he's told that he'll be a, a Nazarite, which the primary meaning of the Hebrew ver- verb Nazar is to separate. So Nazir is the separated, consecrated, devoted. Uh, so the Nazarite basically is one who has separated from others, a special vow of self-dedication. The term set apart is used to mean one that's been given a special calling or position. So he's kind of like been called from infancy to serve this purpose. And as long as he adheres to those covenants and remains a Nazarite, he will have this like special strength, a gift of God. A spiritual gift, right, of strength. A spiritual gift turned physical because clearly the guy is like very, very strong. Um, but it's it's interesting because what was it that led to his downfall? In the end, his hair being cut is like the ultimate betrayal of that status as a Nazarite. It breaks his covenant for good because he was told never to cut it. But all along the way, he shows a behavior throughout his life of kind of going more towards vanity and more towards these petty personal disputes rather than understanding the big picture of what he's there to do. And it's interesting because um, Sister Dib uh, said in her talk, uh, Arise and Shine Forth, in the book of Judges, we learn about Samson. Samson was born with great potential. His mother was promised he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. But as Samson grew, he looked more to the world's temptations than to God's direction. He made choices because they pleased him well, rather than because those choices were right. Instead of arising and shining forth to fulfill his great potential, Samson was overcome by the world, lost his God-given power, and died a tragic early death. And it all comes down to that, that he kind of, liked the fact that he had this strength that he could exact revenge on people he could you know take out these petty disputes on people and it it was not what the lord wanted him to become instead of reaching that potential he he went and killed lots of people he did i don't know it was like there were moments when he kind of come back to the path but a lot of times i think he lost lost track of what he was doing I thought I thought it was interesting in that area where he well 
I guess his something happened. His his father-in-law gave his wife away to someone else, <laughs> and then tried to offer it like the younger wife thing. Oh, she's even pretty, or the younger daughter. And he's like, "What did you just do?" And then he took the jawbone of a donkey and killed like a thousand Philistines. And then <laughs> that which is thing, just like what? <laughs> yeah, that that's the numbers in yeah. the Bible. I don't know. You killed ten. I couldn't maybe see that. Lot. A hundred, I, you, your arm would get tight over how much time? Because if it was in one battle, I may kind of question, like, that seems crazy. Because, I mean, if, if you were to say, here are a hundred pickle jars, I want you to open every single one of them, you know? Like, you couldn't open a thousand pickle jars in a day. Your arm would break. Imagine killing somebody with the jawbone of a donkey, that's not easy. You'd have to have a lot of strength. Literally the first thing he found, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the donkey was probably alive. He just ripped it out of his face. I'm just kidding. So, no, it's like 40, 40 days, 40 nights. I think it just means like a ton of people. Yeah, a lot of time. Yeah. So so then the Philistines are like, well, we need to kill this guy and like hurt him or, or something. And, and so – they talk to his wife, Delilah, and, and try to get her. And so she tries to trick him, like, hey, how can you, how can you be bound? And, and he's like, well, you get five green twigs of vine or something. And they try that, and it doesn't work. And then the next one was, I forget what it was, but that didn't work. And finally, it was his hair. And I'm curious if part of his downfall was not noticing, like, hey, she's actually doing you harm. And at this point, you're showing off. And I, I don't know why it just doesn't sink correctly to me. The, the, like we don't have all the story, you know, or, or at some point you're you're playing with fire and then eventually you told them the actual thing. And then now you're you're they did capture him, pluck out his eyes and, and, and torture him and so on. Right. Yeah. There's a, another quote from uh, the author Edersheim in the book Bible History. That if the secret of Samson's strength lay in the faithful observance of his Nazarite vow, his weakness sprung from his natural character. The parallel so far as Israel is concerned cannot be cannot fail to be seen. And as Samson's sin finally assumed the form of adulterous love for Delilah, so that that of his people was spiritual unfaithfulness. Thus, if the period of the judges reached its highest point in Samson the Nazarite, it also sunk to its lowest in Samson the man of carnal, carnal lusts who yielded his secrets to Delilah. It's a reflection of leaving the covenant path. We've been hearing a lot about the covenant path lately from the brethren, especially this last conference where it was like, stay on the covenant path. If you're off the covenant path, get back on the covenant path. Like, I think what happened here is he's a parallel for Israel in the sense that every time something became more enticing to him than the path he was on and he left, he found himself in a predicament. And oftentimes a lot of work had to go into getting back on it. And eventually he did having, you know, revealing it was his hair and having his hair cut, breaking his covenants as a Nazarite made it so that he was vulnerable to death. The only redeeming thing about him in the end was that uh, he sacrificed himself for the greater good. In the end, you know, causing the building to fall down, pulling the pillars down and killing himself and everybody in it. Uh, that was like his last moment where he kind of was like, all right, I, I've broken my covenant. I've done all this stuff. And I was meant to be liberating Israel. 
this is the best I can do at this point. Yeah. And I just think, you know, when we're looking at, we don't want to be put in a situation where we've made so many bad decisions on so many, you know, recurring basis that we kind of are like, what's the best I can do at this point? We want to say, maybe I'm off the covenant path, but I can still get back on it. Don't don't put yourself, don't paint yourself into a corner where you don't really have a good option. I also think we may not have all the details here, <laughs> yeah. but it seems like Gideon was a, a leader that worked after, stayed on the covenant path and gave him examples of of how to be. And that just wasn't enough because you have to like inter, um, take it inside. You have to internalize it. Yeah, internalize it. And then Samson might have been a leader that said, all right, you want a strong military method out of here? Here it is. But then he didn't have that, like strength wasn't enough. Right. And that's what they valued. And he showed he could kill a thousand people, right? And he could pill on um, pillars, but that wasn't enough to liberate Israel. That's not, and sometimes what we want as Israel, what God gives us, we don't notice and appreciate it. And then when he gives us exactly what we asked for, it may not be the right thing either. You know what I mean? Because yep. I, I, I kind of think a lot about uh, in the Book of Mormon, the, the wars, the war chapters, you know, over and over they're winning and losing and winning and winning and, and, and defending and fortifying and all of these great things. But, you know, the, the prophet at the time just tells us, but but I'll tell you how the word had more power than the sword. It Like it almost did not have to come to this if we would have if we would have just stayed firmly. You know, we and and I've not seen I've not seen that the Lord throws us into bondage when we're with him and honoring him and living the things we should be doing. It's almost always the opposite. We have to get out of bondage by going back to the Lord. I, I like that, though, that no no amount of strength was enough. And how many times are we like, Lord, my life would be so much better if you just give me X. Everything would be perfect if you just give me this. And the Lord's like, uh, I haven't given you that because I've given you all these other things that you're not noticing. And fine, here it is. Here it is. Is your life better now? Well, no, it's not. Okay, yeah, because I've given you the blessings you need all along. You just haven't been taking advantage of them. You just haven't been appreciative or, or shown gratitude for what you had. And yeah, I think that that's kind of a good example we can learn from both of those guys. Become an engaged learner. Immerse yourself in the scriptures to understand better Christ's mission and ministry. Know the doctrine of Christ so that you understand its power for your life. Internalize the truth that the atonement of Jesus Christ applies to you. Every time you plug in your phone, use it as a reminder to ask yourself, if you have plugged into the most important source of spiritual power, prayer and scripture study, which will charge you with inspiration through the Holy Ghost, it will help you know the mind and will of the Lord to make the small but important daily choices that determine your direction. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents 
and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me. Thank you.